We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh of New Bloom. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by ICRT Central Taiwan correspondent, Donovan Smith. And good evening. Tonight we discuss Hualien's tourism issues, the latest local election news, an announcement about Taichung's MRT line, the ongoing controversy surrounding the election of a new National Taiwan University president, and we'll also be taking a look at the trend for cooking schools. But we'll be begin briefly with a pending cabinet reshuffle. But of course, at the time of us recording this show, it is yet to be formally announced. But what we do know is that Defence Minister Feng Shui-kwan is set to be replaced by National Security Council Secretary General Yen De Fa. Education Minister Pan Wen-jong is reportedly leaving for personal reasons. And Labour Minister Lin Mei-ju has tended her resignation due to health reasons. So, while we don't know the finalities of the reshuffle as we're recording the show, Feng's stepping down, of course, comes amid increased military exercises by Chinese forces in waters and airspace near Taiwan, while Lin's resignation comes after passage of the controversial amendments to the amendments to the labour law and reports that she was not happy with the government's handling of the matter. So, Brian, they're calling this a minor reshuffle. Mm, they claim that, but it's interesting because in the past uh, they were very. The Thai administration was quite hesitant to reshuffle the cabinet. Um, they they maintained Ling Chen for so long as premier, despite the fact how unpopular he was. So after William Lai took power not too long ago, it is a little surprising that there's another reshuffle. But it is on issues that that the Thai administration has taken blows on in recent times. I mean, do they obviously the reports have said the defense minister's stepping down, and they've likened it, they've linked it rather to the increased military exercises by China. I mean, do you think this is a possibility, or do you think, of course, Fung's been there since Tsai was inaugurated, basically, mm. as defence minister, and do you think they just think it's time for a change? And it's I, not- think, I think the Tsai mission probably does want to signal uh, that, that intends to turn over a new leaf in terms of military readiness against China. I mean, that, that seems a... Uh, like a, that seems like a, a cautionary measure in some sense. Um, on the other hand, with domestic labor issues, that's also not too surprising why Lin would resign. Yeah, this makes. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. The um, it, it's not it's not unusual to do a cabinet reshuffle in a in a camp you know in a campaign year. Obviously, with the election coming up, and the, the the government's taken a lot of beating over really not handling the labor issue very well. Um, so th- that one makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I think that's uh, that. That may be the Thai government trying to signal that uh, they kind of got the message that they screwed that one up. Mm. It is also a question if uh, Lin is being called upon to sort of fall upon the sword for Lai, who is also there. Have been there has been speculation that Lai was appointed as premier while these laws were being passed as a way of uh, neutralizing him as a political opponent. Uh, a possible political opponent for Tsai during in, in f- her future re-election bid, but it's it's quite hard to say. Um, I think in general that it it, it wasn't passed in a, in a manner that made the Taiwanese public happy. And either way, the Thai administration probably the Thai administration probably does stand to gain from uh, turning over new leaf where this is concerned as well. Yeah, I think they want to bring in some fr- fresh blood for the election, and uh, hopefully that will for them uh, get some gain some new supporters. Obviously, we don't know who all the people are that are going to be brought in, but I think this will make the public happy, Brian. Do you think the public will suddenly go, oh, they're making a change 
it's good because if it was previously there was calls for a change. Mm-hmm. I think probably not. It. I think probably not. Um, I mean, during the uh, past protests around the labor issue or in general regarding dissatisfaction against the Tsai administration, there have been calls for a uh, much more wide-ranging reshuffle, including just calling for William Lai to, re- to resign as premier, despite the fact that he was appointed not too long ago, actually. Um, I think that it, it is a minor reshuffle, and so maybe that is a sign um, of signaling towards the public. But I don't think it's going to really satisfy the public. The public will continue to make demands of the Thai administration. Yeah, I, I generally agree with uh, with Brian's uh, assessment there. Um, but I, 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 it could give her a small bump, depending on who's, who's brought in. There's a possibility that they could bring in somebody who's surprising or... Uh, is a dramatic choice. But unless they do that, I think, yeah, Brian's assessment's right on that. Right, and then we'll move on because, of course, it hasn't been finalised yet and we'll talk about the Cabinet reshuffle in more detail next week. But anyway, flags at government buildings and schools across the island flew at half-mast this Wednesday in respect to the victims of the deadly February 6 Hualien earthquake. Now, of course, 17 people died in the quake and 285 other people were injured. And Cabinet spokesman Xu Guoyong released a statement saying that the central and local governments are continuing to carry out post-disaster relief work in Hualien, and the Cabinet is also calling on the public to continue to visit the city and the county in order to support the tourism sector on which Hualien relies heavily on. Meanwhile, the government is promising to offer subsidies to help ease the financial burden as visitor numbers drop in the aftermath of the quake. And I spoke with Hualien B&B owner-operator Ian Bartholomew about the earthquake and his concerns over how much it could affect the tourist-geared service sector there. Good evening, Ian. Good evening, Gavin. So, the earthquake, obviously not very pleasant. People died a sad occasion. Obviously, most of Hualien is not happy about it, as one wouldn't be. But, I mean, the tourism industry, there's now major concern that the county's tourism industry could be seriously affected by the earthquake. Well, Gavin, I don't know. Long term, is anybody's guess, but um, as far as the quake goes, I mean... Coming just before Chinese New Year, it obviously had a huge impact on tourism numbers coming into Hualien. Right. What about personally? Have you seen your numbers dropping? Oh, yes. I think um, we had quite a lot of cancellations and friends and acquaintances in the um, sort of B&B business around our area also um, had quite a few cancellations. Lots of talk of, you know, refunds. to customers who sort of cancelled the last minute because they were afraid um, of the well of the effects of the um, earthquake. Obviously, there's got a lot of coverage in the local media concern over the tourism sector. There, I mean, do you think it's been certainly in certain parts? Maybe it's been overemphasised, overplayed. Well, I guess. I mean, we're located about um, 20 kilometres south of Hualien City, where obviously most of the damage happened. And, you know, not wishing to underplay the sort of the suffering and loss that took place there. I mean, for us out in the countryside, it was a bit of a wobble. And the aftershocks were um, rather, I guess, anxiety-causing. But um, to hear the media, to be honest, the media reports were even more anxiety-causing. Um, with their constant banging on about sort of Kualien being a disaster area. Um, and two days of that obviously had, you know, lots of people very scared that, um, you know, the whole of Hualien had sort of fallen into the ground. Which obviously it hadn't. 
Uh, no. <laughs> um, you know, there, are, there were four, I guess, major sort of architectural mishaps, which, um, and to be honest, I mean, you know, the buildings lying on their side, look, you know, they look like a real disaster. Uh, but it was four buildings. It wasn't the whole of Hualien. I mean, Hualien clearly, I mean, Hualien City had water cut off, and that's still affecting um, Hualien City now, even quite some days after the event, um, because lots of um, water pipes cracked. Um, but um, I thought the media coverage focused too heavily on buildings falling down. Um, you know, earthquakes in Hualien are not exactly a new phenomenon. That's right. I mean, if you look at the Weather Bureau website on a daily basis, you have basically wobbles every day, virtually. Well, virtually, or oh, we had one this morning. Um, and, well, they're, they're going to go on because, you know, we're on a fault and a fault line. But the thing that, I guess, annoyed me, um, obviously I'm not an expert on um, earthquakes, but the buildings that fell down were built over uh, a known fault line um, and the bridges as well. I mean, the main damage happened over a known fault line. Um, one does sometimes wonder whether the real story shouldn't be sort of bad, poor construction or lack of enforcement of construction codes, um, rather than, you know, Mother Earth destroying Hualien. Right. Of course, the subsidies that the government's offering to boost the county's tourism sector, I mean, it's, it's telling the public to continue going there, which obviously makes sense after the media basically said, don't go there, and I'm paraphrasing that <laughs> quite bluntly. But I mean, uh, I mean how, how do you see these subsidies working, and how do you see them helping the county's tourism sector? Um, well, personally, I have a rather negative take on the subsidies. Um, Obviously, the government likes to see numbers, you know, numbers coming into Hualien, and that always looks good. Um, but my feeling is that the subsidies basically are just lowering the cost of people coming into Hualien um, to boost those numbers, but it's not actually doing anything much for local business. I mean, after all, the subsidies are going to tour companies, not into local businesses, and most of the tour companies are not necessarily based in Hualien. I mean, do you think that maybe Hualien-based hotel owners, B&B owners like yourself, maybe they could form a group and actually petition the central government and the local government to ensure that they get the subsidies rather than the tour group operators themselves? Um, well, I guess, I mean, it's the nature of things like um, small businesses scattered all ac across Hualien. I mean, I dare say they could do that, but... Um, it would probably take a lot longer than something that could sort of happen off the, what would you say, sort of happen very quickly. It's, we're a very scattered bunch of people and obviously also a bunch of people who tend to sort of um, prize our privacy a little bit. So um, probably not the most sort of active group on that front. Um, though, I mean, hotel owners and airlines have, have already acted to sort of bring down prices for trips to Hualien. But, um, again, for people like myself and um, others who are sort of running sort of guest houses, um, fam family-style guest houses where people can really sort of enjoy the beauty of Hualien, it doesn't, it's, we feel, or I feel, that it focuses rather on the, lo the wrong point. It's, it's bringing in people who are day-trippers, who are going to Taroko Gorge maybe for a day. Um, they're not going to spend a lot of money here, and... 
so obviously our focus, well, my focus, would be on tourists who are here for two or three days, who are going to visit local restaurants, who might go for a little bit of trekking, um, who are going to be you know, spending money in local industries throughout Hualien and rather than focusing on like big big stores or souvenir shops in Hualien city but of course i mean the earthquake was just one in several factors that have seen a decline in Hualien's tourism in recent one could say years even <laughs> well um i mean Hualien was doing quite well um for a while but obviously um politics as it does in taiwan has raised its ugly head um the ructions between the current government and mainland China um, haven't helped us. I mean, whatever one, whatever point of view one wants to take as far as you know, Taiwan's relationship with China, the um, it has reduced the numbers of tourists who are coming to Taiwan because I guess it's less convenient now than it used to be. Um, I think everyone has seen numbers drop i mean there are still the tour coaches coming through but for us in particular i mean in the past we had quite a lot of um sort of drive self-drive holidayers from mainland china um these are people who are spending you know who are spending serious time in hualien and this group of people have um, more or less dried up because i presume there are easier places to get to now Right. I mean, in the long term, do you see Hualien's tourism sector bouncing back? Well, I'd love to see that. Um, but, um, well, as I say, politics currently isn't very, um, doesn't give much hope for optimism. Um, with, the, with one of the main markets, which is the Chinese, um, sort of being, what would you say, discouraged to... Um, from coming here, or at least discouraged from spending longer periods here, because obviously, regardless of where they're coming from, tourism tourists who come to Hualien are people who are spending a few more a few days in Taiwan rather than just sort of popping through. Um, sadly, we've seen an increase in sort of day tours coming through, you know, hitting Taroko Gorge and then heading back at night. Um, and this is obviously sort of hurt sort of B&Bs throughout Hualien who are sort of scattered down, down the length of the county um, because everything's being focused at the one sort of, I guess, the, the most famous resort that Hualien has to offer. And the rest is being, I think, sort of slightly ignored. That was me in conversation with Hualien B&B owner-operator Ian Bartholomew. And now, in what has become a regular fixture and will no doubt continue to be for the coming months, that being news about November's local elections. Well, this week, of course, we saw the KMT officially announce that Lu Shou-Yen is its nominee for the Taichung mayoral race, while the KMT rallied in Taipei, and party chairman Wu Deni and former president Ma Ying-jeou talked up their efforts to win back the capital. But we'll begin in Taichung and Donovan, so they've made it official, Donovan. Yeah, they just uh, made it official the other day. Um, and what was dramatic about the about the run up to the to the to that to that formality um, is that uh, Johnny Chang uh, met with uh, Jason Hu, who came to his house over the holiday, and then right afterward uh, he showed a picture of him with Jason Hu, and on Facebook announced uh, that he was fully in support of. Um, 
Liu Xiaoyan, and that he would uh, go all out to, to help her get reelected. He wanted to be part of her campaign team. Uh, although he interestingly kind of downplayed, uh, he said that he would take any role you, you, with the long-term goal in mind rather than, and that he wasn't too concerned about the title, which is interesting because uh, he had already been publicly offered uh, to run the campaign. Um, but he anyway, he made clear that he was very supportive. And now this is important because he brings the red faction, and of course, Jason Hu brings a lot of his supporters from his uh, from his long tenure. So the KMT is doing a very, very good job of organizing and coming together uh, in a unified way in Taichung. Now, uh, opinion polls right now have uh, uh, Lin Jialong, the, the incumbent, uh, and Liu Xiaoyan pretty much neck and neck in the polls. Um, but there's still a lot of undecideds, and it's still very early. Now, she's a very media-savvy um, person. She uh, previously was a news anchor uh, and journalist and won awards and all that. Um, so this is shaping up to be a very interesting campaign. And Zhang Hua right now, the KMT's uh, looking pretty strong as well. So a lot of eyes are going to be on central Taiwan, I think, in this election cycle. Do you think basically Taichung could become the main battleground? Yeah, I think Zhang Hua and, uh, and uh, Taichung. Zhang Hua is the biggest non-special municipality in the country, so it's a pretty big prize. Uh, but yeah, I think a lot of eyes are going to be on Taichung. I think it's going to be the big battleground. Obviously, the Taipei situation is a little bit messy, but DPP is looking strong in um, Taoyuan uh, and, of course, Tainan and Kaohsiung. So Taichung is the second biggest city on the island. So, yeah, I think it's going to be a real must-win for the, for the KMT and the DPP. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite interesting because the KMT has not been able to unite in Taipei, but they managed to do so in Taichung, despite the fact that uh, competition between John Chang and Lu Xiaoyan was quite close. Um, yeah, I guess Lu Xiaoyan has been certainly mobilizing her family connections with regards to her uh, political, you know, her political ties in terms of her family, and that was also true of John Chang. So it's kind of, you know, I feel like the KMT is up to the its usual actions. I mean, Donovan, and the animosity, of course, about the primary is all dissipated with all the, the KMT, both Johnny Jung and Lu Xiaoyan, and of course Jason Hu has come onto the scene to calm everything down. But in the, this, there could be more animosity. Could sneak its head up nearer the elections within the. KMT. KMT down there? I, I see no sign of that. Um, in spite of that 0.6% margin in the primary, everything that Johnny Chang has said or done uh, since um, has been fully, I'm on board with uh, Liu Xiaoyan, uh, I completely support her, I totally ex- ex- you know, um, accept the primary results. Uh, he's been sort of, he's been going way out of his way, frankly, I think, to uh, emphasize that he's totally on board and supportive of the candidate, um, much more so than, for example, in the last election cycle in Zhanghua, where literally there was a lot of actual physical violence uh, in that primary. Um, so, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think that uh, the KMT is feeling the heat, um, and I kind of get the sense from Johnny Chang or Jiang Chitang um, that he, he's a team player. That's the, the sense I get out of him. And of course, team player, well, there's not much of that at the moment in Taipei. Of course, Brian with the DPP really sit at odds over who they're going to elect. They've got 
former Vice President Annette Liu is seeking to run for Taipei Mayor. Pursu Yao, of course, former lawmaker, another government official, a long-time DPP well-known character, is also looking to run in Taipei. And then, of course, there's incumbent Mayor Kerwinger sitting down, wondering when the phone is going to ring, saying, you're running for us. <laughs> uh, it's quite funny, because, you know, Kirk claims that he has the support, he has good standing with the DPP when all signs are that this is not the case. You know, on the other hand, the DPP is just kind of tearing itself apart. Um, it's surprising that Annette Liu would throw her hat into the ring. I mean, she is a heavyweight within the party, but for her to try to pursue a kind of a viable, you know, to, to remain in the spotlight as, as mayor of Taipei, that's kind of an unusual step, and I, that, that is dividing the party, because she does have weight within the party, despite of how mixed her image is with the public. On the other hand, Pasuya Yao is, he, he's run for, he's tried to run for mayor forever. Um, he hasn't gotten there, and this is yet another case in which he's, he's running again, and now he's up against not only Koenjo, who is is a divisive figure within regards to Han Green Camp, but also Annette Liu. So we'll we'll have to see about that. And what about the KMT? Obviously, Ujani and Maing Joe said we're going to win back the capital. I mean, who do you see them putting forward? Um, it's kind of funny because Ding Suozhong seems to be you know the equivalent to Pasui Yao that he has run many times and he is running again this time. Um, I think it is is a question because there are some unknowns that are running um, that hopefully that they hope that they can elevate their prestige or standing within the party. I think by putting their name forward for running for mayor. Um, on the other hand, the KMT doesn't really have a fresh new candidate, which they could have actually had if they had went with Jiang Wanan. Though that would have been a controversial choice. Um, on the other hand, going with Ding, Ding Shouzhong, he's been there for a while. He's known. And he seems like a stable choice. Um, I do love that one of the KMT candidates, Zhang Xianyao, he had a press conference where he uh, he, he had uh, people dressed as Iron Man and Spider-Man with him, though. That happened the last two days. Oh, colorful, colorful. Yeah, right. and then, of course, he had to go out and uh, explain about how the treason charges against him were dropped. That's right. And he brought... <laughs> That was a little bit of a surreal um, <laughs> announcement, but yeah. He, he actually <laughs> bought the thing through it. Yeah. I kind of feel like she's doing it to make herself relevant again. That's mm-hmm. the, the real strong sense I'm getting there is I, like she's been marginalized in a lot of ways recently. Maybe she doesn't feel like she's being listened to or respected much. Uh, so I really feel like she's doing this more as a publicity stunt than anything else. I think she's trying to cash in on her leverage from the democracy movement in some sense, yeah. because, you know, Chen Zhu is mayor of Kaohsiung, and she's doing pretty well in terms of popularity and so forth. And so she's trying to, you know, stay in the spotlight, uh, you know, put herself forward as an equivalent in Taipei, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we shall leave the elections. It'll probably next week we'll get back to them with some other news. But we'll take a short break now, and we'll be right back after this wee commercial interlude. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and we're going to begin the second half of the show with students and faculty members from the National Taiwan University taking to the streets of Taipei this week to voice their anger at the government's ongoing refusal to ratify the appointment of Guan Zhongmin as university president. They accuse the government of failing to adhere to the principle of university autonomy. Former National Taiwan University presidents are also backing Guan's election, with Sun Jen saying that the delay in appointing Guan is causing anxiety among faculty, students and alumni. Everybody's anxiety, apparently, according to him, while former president of the university, Chen Wei Zhao, who doubles 
Conveniently enough, as governor of the school's selection committee, says that the government's disregard for regulations is the darkest time for university democracy and academic freedom. Guan was, of course, elected last month to serve as National Taiwan University president, but as we've discussed on the show before, his victory has been mired in controversy amid allegations of plagiarism and conflict of interests. Now, the Ministry of Education is continuing to demand the allegations be fully investigated before it appoints Guan, while the university's selection committee this week insisted that he was legally elected and says that the government should respect the ballot's legitimate results. So Brian, is is this the government interfering in Tidar? I think it's an issue of uh, Tidar's prestige in some sense, because that that's what happened to her last president, that he basically had the exact same scandal regarding plagiarism and eventually had to more or less leave his position in disgrace. Um, that was Yang Panju. Um, and so for the same scandal to occur again with uh, the next NTU president is, it reflects badly on NTU insofar as NTU is supposedly the most prestigious university in the in the country. Um, but maybe it does point to deep-rooted problems regarding plagiarism in academia or cases in which advisors kind of leech off of their students' uh, research. Um, that's definitely an issue that you see in Taiwan or other places in the world. Um, of course, on, the other yeah. issue was conflict of interest because, of course, right. someone he was working for and with was on the board of the people mm. that voted for him. That's right. And that was on the board of... Uh, he was a... Uh, member a board member for uh, Taiwan Mobile and so you know there's a lot of there's massive amounts of money involved there and that is also controversial um, there's also the issue that this is in some way related to the DPP because the, the party assets investigation is going on and uh, the DPP has taken measures to investigate the KMT and uh, Pan was a, a high-ranking financial official under Mindyo and he was he pushed for the CSST quite strongly and uh, he is viewed as Fairly, very quite conservative as an economics expert. Um, so there is kind of a, a political dimension here too, in which the accusation that the government is going after him is also tied to accusations that the DPP is going after the KMT through a green terror or things like that. Um, sometimes, oftentimes within Taiwanese academia, unification versus independence politics ends up getting tied up in here. Past academic scandals have also involved that. For example, involving Xiaoling uh, Ting at Fujian University, for example. Um, so it becomes complicated. But it, do, you, do you think this is a major encroachment on academic freedom, Donovan? Um, <laughs> I think for all the, all the reasons that uh, Brian just laid out there, uh, I'm not really sure that's, that's the issue almost. I, I think it really is that there's a lot of politics going on. I thought it was very interesting um, that the former NTU chairs, when they came out uh, just the other day, uh, attacking the government. They're very, very specific in attacking uh, Tsai Ing-wen personally. Uh, and they suggested that it was her behind this. And so this really does, as Brian noted, seem to be a very, a very political thing going on here. There's something, and unfortunately, the Ministry of Education has to sign off on this. So there, in a sense, it isn't uh, I, you know, that's that's legally the way it's supposed to be, uh, or at least that's the way that they've set it up. So there's going to be political interference if uh, this if it's set up that way. So yeah, there there is interference, but that's the way they've set the system up. And of course, the National Taiwan University, Brian, is the the, the island's most esteemed university. In theory, it's not not looking very <laughs> good, is it? Really? Unfortunately, not. Unfortunately, not. Um... And the fact that this happened twice in a row, that really does not reflect well on NTU. Um, so hopefully it doesn't happen a third time, but we'll have to see. <laughs> right, we shall move away from controversy and talk to lovely other things. Transport, let's move on to transport. 
And of course we have Donovan on the phone from Taijong today, so we'll take the opportunity to discuss the announcement this week that one of the city's MRT lines is now 75% complete and trial runs will start at the end of this year. Now, you've long been a vocal critic of construction of the MRT line, but surely with the end in sight for completion of the 167 kilometer Green Line, it must be good news for some people and making others happy, Donovan. Well, I mean, the, 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 the basic line, uh, I think it's, it was not necessary, but it makes some sense compared to the other plans that are uh, uh, in the works. It will run from the high-speed rail, uh, this is the original plan, and this is what there is under construction now, is from the high-speed rail up to Dakang, and it goes up a Wenshin Road. So that's quite useful for ferrying people from the downtown area, because right now the, the TRA line uh, also runs right by the high-speed rail. So this does mean that a lot of people right through the center of the city, including the city hall area, Chi-Chi, uh, and it's a fairly heavily uh, populated area, will be able to get to and from the high-speed rail station uh, more easily and effectively, and it will help commuters because it is a fairly heavy, uh, heavily trafficked thoroughfare. So that part of the project is now 75% done, uh, like you said, that, uh, but now they're, and they, they expect it will actually become uh, fully operational to the public in 2020. Um, so that's, and that's an elevated uh, train system, which is relatively cheap compared to an underground one. What they're planning to do, and this is where I think this is getting a little bit silly, is they have now already agreed to take the uh, the green line and extend it into Zhonghua City. Now, my my objection to this is that it essentially runs parallel to the existing light rail system that the TRA operates, meaning it's essentially replicating something that's already there. So I don't really see the point in that. Now, that's not part of that 75% complete number. That's a that's an extension project. Now, they've got the MRT Blue Line has already been uh, greenlit, uh, which will run from down near the harbor, uh, one station past the Taichung Rail Station, and then that's going to be underground under Taichung, uh, Bull- Taiwan Boulevard, and that's going to be a very expensive uh, project, and I believe because of the way- where they're going to build it, it's going to be ex- more exp- expensive than they anticipate, and it's going to disrupt traffic on Taichung's major thoroughfare for over a decade. And it won't actually save people much time over the existing uh, bus express system uh, that they have operating right now. Well, In there, fact, it'll slow some people down. Well, there you go. You're going to have a bit of a messy city for a few there, aren't you, Donovan? Uh, at least a decade. Anyway, before we go today, cooking schools are taking off here in Taiwan as both the young and the old are looking to hone their culinary skills and impress their family and friends with colourful cakes and tasty fare. And I spoke with Taipei-based writer Jules Courtley about the craze. Good evening, Jules. Uh, good evening, Gavin. How are you? Good, good. A bit hungry, but that's a good thing, of course, because apparently people are hungry in Taiwan to learn how to cook. Cooking schools are now a big fad here, not just regular cooking schools where people learn to cook like traditional Chinese food, but also baking schools are big now, I believe. Yeah, that's right, Gavin. Yeah, people are hungry, hungry for something new, I think. Uh, that's the point. I mean, it's not just cooking nowadays, in a way, I, I would say. It's um, entertainment, uh, doing something different instead of going to the KPB, having a coffee or something like that. Uh, they want to go and do something experiential, uh, get their hands into some flour and make, uh, make a cupcake, that sort of thing. 
Right. Do you think this has possibly got big because of people's kitchens here in Taiwan, where they don't have quite the equipment to actually bake? Well, big isn't the word for Taiwan kitchens, of course, as you well know, Gavin. Um, yes, uh, that certainly is a factor. You're absolutely right. Um, the kitchens in Taipei are very, very small. Well, in Taiwan are very, very small, and they don't usually have an oven, uh, unless it's that small toaster thing uh, that's uh, become popular. But... Um, if you go to these studios, they generally have some decent ovens in there. That's their primary feature, really. And uh, they can do anything they like in that. Uh, but I think another thing is um, that they want to take pictures. This is another thing. Um, especially the, uh, well, not so much Generation X, but the millennials. They want to go in there, do something, and then put something up on their social media site. So they want to be seen doing something in these cupcakes and cakes and uh, whatever meal they make, they want to take a picture of it and put that up on their social media site and, and so I can say, there, well, look at me, look how, look how interesting I am, and here's a colourful uh, cupcake. Right, of course, you've spoken to several people that own these cooking schools. I mean, who's going? Is it, it, you said it was young people. Is it, is it boys? Is it girls? Is it men or is it women? Um, all of the above, Gavin, all of the above. Um, I think... Uh, it tends to be the younger ones who are going there to the, say, the baking studios that popped up. I don't know whether you've noticed yourself. I think you have. Uh, but there are baking studios. They tend to pop up in um, areas that uh, have more income and uh, in high streets and so on. And the idea is, is that um, around uh, 11 o'clock or in the afternoon, instead of going for a morning tea or something like that, or afternoon tea, they'll pop into a baking studio, bake a cake, and have that. And these are possibly the older ladies, I suppose, who've got disposable income. And then, uh, say, on the weekend, uh, or in the evenings, in fact, uh, you might find the millennials coming out to play, and then they'll want to put, uh, bake a cake and um, basically uh, photograph it and uh, start a conversation on their social media about how wonderful their cake was. Well, there you go. But is it just cakes and bread, or are people learning to cook other things, maybe paella and things that are a bit more experimental? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, actually, that's a growing market and has been for some time. Uh, there's Ivy Chen, who's uh, in Tian Mu, and she's been doing this for 16, I think, two decades nearly in Tian Mu. And she's been doing it mainly for uh, tourists who come in, uh, because there's this uh, market for people who travel a lot and then they want to go to a place, a new place and experience the cooking and then they get into the culture of um, uh, the country that they're visiting by uh, learning to cook there. And so people like Ivy Chen in, um, at Ivy's Kitchen, they've been doing this for some time, but they've experienced that locals are starting to come in more, uh, partly because, and this is quite interesting, and again, it's a millennial thing, but... Um, People don't actually learn to cook anymore, uh, possibly in, in your day, Gavin, and possibly at night. Um, you learned to cook uh, with your mother at, uh, at the stove or something like that, and they told you what to do, and they showed you how to do this thing. But now, of course, they don't. Um, they're eating out, everybody eats out, everything is processed, everything is whipped up in, an, in a microwave. So it gets to the point that uh, they want to either show off to their boyfriend or something, uh, and, uh, you know, show that they can uh, be a good wife, so they want to learn how to cook. And so then they'll go to these courses and learn how to cook, and that's another market. What about the health issues? Because obviously people may be thinking, uh, well, if I, cook, if I cook my own food, it's healthier than going to the greasy chicken store or whatever they're going to. 
Well, another good point, Gavin. Yes, that's true. I mean, there's this uh, farm-to-table um, uh, movement that's going on where you want to know where you get your food uh, from. There's a lady uh, uh, not far from me uh, near Taipei 101. Her name is um, Jody Tao. She runs cooking classes. And what she does is uh, she takes uh, her students uh, down to the market, actually, and uh, shows them how to cook. Uh, well, not how to, well, not just how to cook, but how to shop. You know, because quite a lot of uh, people are just going to the supermarket now and they don't know how to, you know, buy chicken, what the good chicken looks like, uh, vegetables, you know, which is um, ready to eat and which is uh, ready to put on the side uh, for later. So she actually takes them down to a market and she does a good job there of uh, actually introducing the philosophy of food and uh, inspiring people to make the most of natural ingredients by combining them creatively. Right, but do you think it's a lasting movement, we'll call it, or do you think it's just a fad and next month we'll have some other fad? Uh, another good point, Gavin. I mean, I think um, you could look at it two ways. You could look at it as business. So say all these people who've been laid off because of the poor economy uh, or uh, wanted to leave their companies. Uh, I mean, previously they would open a, a Jeonju night, uh, you know, a, a milk tea store or a coffee shop. I mean... That's how come we've got so many good coffee shops now, uh, because they wanted to do something simple and something they were able to do, and they've uh, developed businesses that way. And, of course, these cooking studios, um, these uh, baking, uh, baking courses and so on and so forth, uh, they're good for this sort of thing. So it's a great business option for somebody who wants to go into business on, them, uh, on, them, on their own. As for the uh, demand, um, I think that's there as well and it won't go away. And uh, people will always want to cook. And uh, if people want to cook, uh, they'll have an interest in cooking. Food is central to people's lives, Gavin. And um, learning how to cook is uh, obviously going to be central. So, no, it's not going to go away. In a way, I think it will become more specialised. I'm quite interested in seeing what Taiwan does with the idea now that it's I, th- I think it's um, solidified now as an idea. It's um, maturing as an idea. And I think it will become more exciting, actually. And we'll see what goes on there. That was me in conversation with Taipei-based writer Jules Quartley. And that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And on the telephone from Taijong with a pending messy situation with an MRT line, Donovan Smith. <laughs> Thanks. And thanks for tuning in to this edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.